I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that everything in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. You think I've been too critical of Nancy Pelosi on this podcast? I mean, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you're not critical of Nancy Pelosi herself as a politician, but it's more like you wondered whether it's a good idea for the Democratic leadership to be so coastal. Pelosi, the Californian in the House, and the New Yorker, Schumer in the Senate, and you, as usual, are kind of worried about the Midwest being considered flyover country. That's true. I mean, I I certainly like Nancy Pelosi's policies. You know, I mean, she I'm a Democrat. I agree with her. I, sometimes I wish she was a little bit farther left, actually. Um, but to play with an open hand, we're recording this episode before we know the results of the 2022 midterm election. So we're either uh, blissfully ignorant of bad news or we don't know something wonderful has happened. But um, one thing that does seem clear is that Nancy Pelosi is not going to be Speaker of the House after these elections are over, whenever they do manage to be over. And if she is, we're going to put a bunch of party sounds into the audio right here. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so this is Whitney just breaking in to say that things went a hell of a lot better than expected for the Democrats and for Nancy Pelosi than the polls and pundits led us to expect when we're recording this show. Uh, I'm slipping in this commentary on Wednesday night, November 9th, a full day after the elections. At this point, the House is still too close to call. A shocking surprise since the Republicans were at one point looking to pick up I don't know, numbers varied, 40 seats, 60 seats, who knows what they were imagining. It's not happening. It looks like they're going to probably win, but there is still a legitimate path for Democrats to win, and if the Republicans win, it's going to be a small majority. And of course, in the Senate, Democrat John Fetterman beat Dr. Oz. Yes. Sugi. 
Could you sound a little happier about this? I'm Come so on. tired. Oh my God. Were you not up until the dawn watching Good this Lord. stuff? This was a big uh, yes. win. I'm sorry you have a flight tomorrow. Um, I'm delighted. And also... And in the Senate, John Fetterman won also. All right. Do the banter by yourself. Um, in the Senate, delightful Democrat John Fetterman, the best of the best, who dealt with all sorts of... Beat the living shit out of him And also, like, all that fucking ableism in the reporting about him, which really pissed me off. Um, And a whole bunch of Trump-supported election-denying candidates lost in all sorts of governor's races across the country. And watching them fall um, was delightful. Tim, I I wish to list these people and so that they can be in our tiny hall of shame um, here on Fiction Nonfiction. Tim Michaels in Wisconsin... We have quite a large hall of shame, actually. <laughs> no, it's tiny because we want them to be really squished in. Um, Tim. <laughs> That's right, we make them very small. Tim Michaels in Wisconsin, Tudor Dixon in Michigan, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, Darren Bailey in Illinois, Dan Cox in Maryland, woo, Maryland, and Lee Zeldin in New York. And control of the Senate still looks like it will come down to uh, the races in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. Uh, whatever party wins two of those states, looks like they're going to hold the Senate. The Dems lead in Arizona. The GOP candidate lives in Nevada. And Georgia is headed to a runoff in December. Uh, which is very exciting. I wrote in woohoo, but Suki is not <laughs> capable of saying that right now. I'm maybe not capable of saying that ever. Woohoo! I will, would just like to say that I would do a thousand sit-ups a day to beat Herschel Walker. Um I wish that that were actually a useful thing to do, but but it's not. Um, so instead, we will donate, we will phone bank, we will do all of the things for uh, Warnock, who will be in that runoff, uh, that crucial runoff in Georgia. Um, I am, in fact, delighted. <laughs> Back to the show and our delightful discussion with Matthew Clark Davison about Nancy Pelosi. So listen for those party sounds, uh, listeners out there. But if you don't hear them, you know what's happened, which is that she did the the, the, the she's now in the minority, um, and and as are probably most of us. Um, either way, we felt like now was a good time to look back at Nancy Pelosi's career as a politician, to think about her, and to think about her as a player in and at times a victim of today's politics, especially after the recent attack on her husband Paul Pelosi. And to do that, we've asked the writer and San Francisco resident Matthew Clark Davison to join us on the show. Matthew's debut novel, Doubting Thomas, was named one of 46 must-read books by queer authors by Esquire, and his prose has been published in Bomb, LitHub, Lambda Literary, The Advocate, Guernica, The Atlantic Monthly, and many others. He's a member of the Writer's Grotto and serves on the board of Foglifter Journal and Press. He teaches creative writing at San Francisco State University, where he also earned his MFA and BA. Matthew, welcome to the show. Hello, you two. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you. My wife is from San Francisco, so I have some local knowledge of San Francisco. My sister lives there now. Um, I think most of America thinks of Nancy Pelosi as a sort of synecdoche for San, San Francisco. Um, if I'm remembering the difference between synecdoche and metonymy uh, the right way. Isn't it like she's part represents the whole, but not a thing in place of a thing? I think of her as part of San Francisco representing the whole. That's my... Sugi, what do you have to say? I think that's right. I was just trying to remember okay. the difference between those two terms also and was like, oh, crap, I definitely don't know. 
uh, <laughs> metonymy is when you like. And I teach creative writing too, and I don't, I don't, I, I can never remember, but I had okay, to look good. it up, and I think the answer um, for me is yes. Her district, yes. Congressional District Twelve. <laughs> only, only on this show do we get to talk about synecdoche and metonymy before we even get to the subject of what we're actually talking about. Her district, Congressional District Twelve in California, covers most of San Francisco, but not all of it. Um, in fact, San Francisco State, where you got your BA and MFA and where you teach now, is in California's 14th congressional district, which I was surprised when I looked this up, represented by Jackie Spire. Is that how you say that name? Or Yeah. So, but nobody thinks of Jackie Spire as a synecdoche of San Francisco, except maybe San Francisco's. How did Nancy Pelosi get that role? Well, you know, I, I don't know. But what I can say about my impression about that is that, you know, first of all, I lived in uh, um, my rule when I moved to San Francisco in 1989 was that I needed to be in walking distance of this place called Cafe Four, which is on the corner of Market and Noe, very close to the queer neighborhood, the Castro, the historically gay neighborhood, and uh, um, where where Harvey Milk was the um, rep. And uh, um my my I moved I think fifteen times in the the first five years or so that I lived in San Francisco, but I was always my rule was I was always walking distance to Cafe Floor, which put me in uh, um, Congresswoman Pelosi's um, district for sure, and so I was represented and voted for um, Nancy Pelosi many times, and um, I, I think that it's probably just her outspokenness like her her willingness to speak out on issues from a very early date that people weren't really speaking out on and and the one that you know absolutely positively goes straight to my heart is AIDS and so I think that probably because the cultural current in or the the cultural imagination had something so different than what she had in her own mind about what a person with AIDS was. Perhaps um, she became, because San Francisco became synonymous with AIDS. I remember being scared to tell people that I lived there when I would travel because I thought it could bring on more um, crappy stuff that I had already been dealing with um, because people were just, just like, a you know, when I went to go to drop out of high school, for example, I had to get this paper signed by my teachers in Massachusetts. And I guess it was in case, um, I guess it was in case I ever decided to return to high school. And one of my teachers, an educator, had said to me, what, what are you going to do after you drop out? And I said, I'm going to move to back, I'm going to move to San Francisco. And he said, to do what? Die of that disease with the rest of the gays? So that was the association that I think San Francisco had in in a lot of the in the broader cultural imagination, and I think that her outspokenness around those issues may have gotten her to be synonymous with San Francisco. It seems like the rest of the country has a pretty distant relationship to her, despite her kind of elevated status in in the House, and she's been the avatar of California liberalism, as as Whitney was pointing out. But you're giving us this this great description of your kind of history in San Francisco and these the specific neighborhood you lived in. Um, what is it actually like to have her as your representative? And do you see her around town? Do you know where her house is? Uh, you're talking about her connection to the community. When you talk about those outspokenness on those issues, d- does that mean that she was someone who was kind of talking to her, her constituents who were facing those issues? She really what is her a sense of her as a national leader, but not really as a local one? 
I love having her as my representative. I, I loved it very much from as from a young person. Um, but I was also really trying to survive. I voted from the first time I could. Um, I was born in 1970, so I think the first time I could vote was 1989, actually. And I voted the very first time I could for her. And, uh, you know, given the choices, I have almost, you know, I, you know, I keep voting for her. And I think that on one hand, you know, I was such a young person dealing with such adult issues in San Francisco at that time because my friends were suffering from um, AIDS. And because, you know, it was like the party was on on one hand and it was like the funnest time of, of my life in some ways because I was coming into my own and I was meeting some incredible people. But at the same time, there was so much suffering that was happening. And here was this woman in a pair of spike heels with <laughs> lawless hair, with a, a pencil skirt, an amazing blouse, a power jacket that would show up and would speak out for our, our community. She had like perfect teeth, beautiful skin. And it was just like, I was a teenager that was in love with the idea of femme, high femme glamour. And combine that with intelligence and combine that with a sort of confidence that I felt that she held. I couldn't help but worship her, but I was also very much on the street activist um, and also busy. I was a teenager without an education trying to get one and also completely... um, you know, self-sufficient in my, I, I wasn't, I didn't get any money other than my work. And so I didn't have time to get entrenched in politics as an idea. It was that I was fighting for the lives of my friends and she was there. So of course I loved her. I do it was think amazing. Her, her dress is kind of, it's interesting to hear that that was, you know, she's known for dressing that way now, but that even at the beginning of her career. So if you voted for her in 89, she first got elected in, in 87 so that's would have been she's been this you know she's had that style of dress from the very start I guess. She also um, had been campaigning. I, I, my timelines are all screwed up in my memory in general, but she had been campaigning campaigning at Glide. And after my second of the two best friends that I lost to AIDS, I think it was in two thousand and two, had died. I was really volunteering a lot, and Janice Miracatani, the poet, had become my mentor. And so I met. Pelosi, I was in the, I think I'm 99.9% sure I was one of three people in the room when she was one of three once. And um, Jen was the same way. Jen was always the most intelligent person in the room, but was constantly being underestimated by the the men that were around her, in my opinion, and was so fierce, but was that fierce while being a complete glam goddess and my you know young <laughs> gay boy opinion and so i just yeah, there there is there is something about that drag there's something about that what you have to armor yourself with in order to go out in the world and to fight for what it is that you believe in that me and my community we really related to so this is interesting because um right the way Part of her ascension, you know, in 2004, Dick Gephardt was the Democratic minority leader and he was, you know, from Missouri, as Whitney would want me to mention. And who I think that's good. It's the last, like, I can't barely remember any Democratic politicians from Missouri anymore, but there was right. I exactly, yeah, who, who would have ever thought that I would feel a warm nostalgia for 
to get part. Uh, when he stepped down to run for president, which was a super bad idea for him, Nancy Pelosi took over as minority leader and became the first woman to lead a major party in either chamber of Congress. And, you know, we're talking about the way that she presents herself and, and right, of course, under that, the undercurrent of gender and just also femme presentation. How much do women in politics... Um, and this is, I guess, sort of a two-part question, but how much do women in politics, people like Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris and Alexandra, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez um, owe to Nancy Pelosi's trailblazing? You know, I would be very interested to hear them talk about that in in a way. And I do, I do think that she was a trailblazer. And I do hope that even with like the contention that we hear about between, uh, um, oh, God, um, OAC is part of the... With the squad? Yes. It's the squad? Or the, That's right. The, the, it's okay, AOC and the squad. And the squad yeah. Um, yeah, AOC and the squad. I think that, that, that um, you know, we hear about those differences, and I wonder about that. I personally think I've, I've, um, the way in which I've um, suffered in this lifetime, if I've suffered, because mostly I have a pretty good time, <laughs> I've found places where I could be myself and people who love me and that I love. And so I, I don't really have very many complaints about my life, but I was very much the victim of some pretty disgusting homophobia. And I've always felt that there's a direct connection to homophobia and misogyny because there are so many people that I know who were bullied for being gay who aren't, but it was because they were perceived as feminine in a boy's body. And then also there are so many um, people who at one point may have identified as a woman, but didn't fit what people in their communities wanted a woman to be. And so therefore were really uh, marginalized. And to me, it's such misogyny to pit women against one another, even if they have differences. I, I, I sense that I don't know Nancy Pelosi, but I sense that she's someone who as, 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 as strong as she seems and as unyielding as she seems and as much as she's willing to fight, I also think of her as being interested in other people's opinions. And I can imagine those women sitting around a table and listening to one another, whether or not they agree. And I, and I personally think that that's healthy. So um, I, would be, I would be interested to hear um, what, I, what they would have to say about that. Um, I would be interested to hear what what Hillary Clinton would have to say to that question. Um, but it, it would seem to me that they would probably love, love the fact that she did some trailblazing. I don't know. What do you two think? Well, I was thinking two things. One, a, a prior podcast in which we had Alexandra Billings on. Am I remembering the name right? Who, yeah. who was making a really good connection, a similar connection between misogyny and anti-trans sentiment and homophobia and that and pointing mm -hmm. that out i would direct readers there but i also thought just in our last episode we were talking to tom parada about tracy flick the and he was pointing out that that the book election came out in 1998 and there were very few female politicians around but nancy pelosi was one of them right and has really i think was an important trailblazer uh, for thinking about women in power and has become even more so over time yeah, I was thinking of that Billings episode also. And then and then we had Paul Lisicki on and, and he was, I mean, among other guests who've spoken about AIDS um, and how we have talked and written about it, what it can be compared to and what it can't. Um, and even what um, I remember T. Fleischman was on an early episode and said um, that people think of trans women as a metaphor for women. They don't think of them as women. Mm -hmm. And that, that the mm -hmm. fine tune, like... The, the precision of that phrasing has like really stayed with me that um, that question of um, 
that that question, that deep entwining of misogyny, which I think you're totally right about. And I think that's why she's become such a she's she appears in so many Republican ads and why she's so hated on the right. Right. As a strong female figure who will not back down. And I mean, I would like to play right here. We're, we're just going to play. We're going to put into the, the, the show a little bit of her comments um, during the January 6th insurrection, which just came out during the January 6th committee. And I thought it'd be really interesting for us to, you know, to listen to those real quickly and, and, and look at how I just, that really changed my, I'd never seen her act, you know, like in a private moment like that, be really aggressive and tough. And I just thought that really changed the way that I, it didn't change the way I thought about her, but it certainly made me admire her even more. Here's what she said. They're breaking windows and going in, uh, uh, obviously ransacking our offices and all the rest of that. That's nothing. The, uh, the concern we have about uh, personal harm, safety. personal safety is it just transcends everything. But the fact is, on any given day, they're breaking the law in many different ways. And quite frankly, much of it at the instigation of the president of the United States. Watching the the way that she responded, I, I actually wasn't super surprised. I was delighted, be, but I have always imagined that behind the curtain of what it is to be such a public figure in a country that that scapegoats on Nancy Pelosi. And I think that a lot of my friends of my generation, um, LGBTQ folks, really related to her, and not everyone does, of course, and I, I have some friends that are very, very impatient with her and think of her as you know, being way too old guard and whatever else. And, and I respect those opinions. I, but it's just the, the ways in which we relate to them. It's like, what's going on, what we're dealing with, um, the, the way that scapegoating affects you and how it is that you've just got to be able to move on with your day while that's happening. And I was really impressed by just how together she held, uh, and, and I wasn't surprised. I was, um, happy that that was recorded and that people got to see that because I it, it actually matched some sense of what I imagined she was like behind closed doors. And she just was so much more together and organized and practical than any of the men there, you know. So I just, I liked that. I thought that was interesting. All right, we want to get to the second part of that question, though. And this is, I have had some criticism for Pelosi and I've spoken about it on this podcast before, not about her personally and her politics, but about whether it's a good idea for uh, there to be for the the major party, the, the congressional reps to be from New York and California, right on the Democratic side, you know, because again she replaced Dick Dick Gephardt, this uh, Missouri Democrat, you know, and I wonder what her ascension to that role and the dominance now that California plays in Democratic politics has to do with her presence as the, as the leader during all of these years. Is it possible that that had something to do with Missouri shifting from being a bellwether state that used to vote for Democrats to being an all-red state now? You know, watching that Frontline documentary, um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it makes it pretty compelling about Nancy Pelosi. It makes it pretty compelling um, case for the fact that if something happens in the Democratic Party, she caused it. Although I, I, I don't know. It's like you can say that, but without taking into consideration the years and years of nuanced relationships and conversations 
and you, you know, God knows what ha- um, went into what all the different moving pieces that that added up to that conception. I don't know. I I I, I don't I don't really. I don't really know. Could she do that? What do you think? I mean, you're the one that's from Missouri. I'm not sure. Well, I think the problem is that her dress, which plays really well in New York and San Francisco, plays poorly here because people don't dress like that for the most part, right? And I think that it would be useful if there were other people who were in the Democratic leadership. I mean, I think she should bring on somebody. And maybe there's been some talk about trying to figure out who is going to succeed her. I mean, she's we're recording this, as we mentioned, before the elections, but she's very likely by now minority leader, right? Because it doesn't look like the Democrats are going to hold the House. Um, and I just, you know, they're great candidates. I think that I just I'd like to see her and the Democrats elevate some people from the Midwest and South. OK, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. But I would like us to talk about, I don't know, I don't give a shit about how she dresses. I mean, I, I do in that like, you know, but I mean, who do you even remember what Dick Gephardt wore? Like, how can you even separate this question from the misogyny? Um, right. Like, who is a, a prominent? Point. Well, I yeah, mean, there like, is a problem a, with misogyny in the Midwest. I'm not going to say. Yeah, I mean, like, who otherwise. is a prominent woman? Right. Like Amy Klobuchar ran for president and. Like, I think so much of the conversation about her and she in some ways would be like a very logical, I don't know, in some ways, like a logical successor to be like a figurehead for the Democratic Party. And it like totally didn't stick. It totally didn't stick. Right. Right. And I, I also want to say that I in no way am. Um, I, I was trying to answer when I was talking about Nancy Pelosi's way of dressing, I was talking from the standpoint of like a 19 year old and, you know, just being so in like, like the ideas of glamour and power and all of those things mixed together seemed very real to somebody that, you know, of adolescent, you know, intelligence. And I, I still can't believe, because if I, if I think about the moment that I knew that Trump was going to win was when, um, when Hillary Clinton was saying that, you know, we need to embrace, um, you know, she was talking about like really important democratic platform ideas about, um, you know, moving away from xenophobia and toward embracing and learning about one another. And he was saying law and order, law and order while stalking behind her. And, you know, Hillary Clinton has never, you know, didn't leave an impression. I wasn't, I also met Hillary Clinton and, and Bill Clinton on the campaign trail at Glide Church in San Francisco. And uh, um, I do actually remember what she was wearing, but I don't, I did I don't remember it because it stood out for me in the same way that I was talking about, you know, um, Jan Katani and Nancy Pelosi. I think that it's it's so much deeper than that. It's about intelligence. It's about power. It's about the fact that she is able to um, unapologetically hold that power, assert herself, in um, have an opinion. She's even comfortable, it seems, from the outside, with having an opinion that um, the more progressive people the people that are seen as more progressive from the outside, like there was that headline, I can't remember what exactly it said, but it was something like, they don't think I'm left yeah. enough, so be it. You know, and I, I think it's moments like this that, that you know, more than her dress, I, at least I'm hoping, although Whitney 
You do make. I don't. Well, I don't know I what just, it's like to live in the Midwest. Look, there are candidates who can win in the Midwest who are female. I mean, Sharice Davids, who's a Native American, is one in Johnson County, Kansas, which is the suburban part of Kansas City. Uh, she's a Democrat, and that and that county has traditionally been Republican, and she's going to win again, probably. Um, this, despite the Republicans having the lead in the national polling, and she's. Well, I mean, she's just very different than Nancy Pelosi. She's a former MMA fighter, you know, I mean, and does videos of herself boxing. Nancy it's did that. a different deal. Nancy did that in the alternate timeline. <laughs> That's the... But Nancy Pelosi came to RuPaul's Drag Race to count, to to count, to get oh, to encourage people to come. I love that. So I mean, sort too. of what you're painting so, is a warmer yeah. picture of her. I feel like than we normally see. And and I should say, like I have, um, I should say that my my heart sings with joy when you describe like loving her as like a glam person. Um, I I wear lipstick on this podcast. Like maybe tune into the YouTube channel, listeners. Um, like maybe seventy five percent of the time. And today for Matthew, mm-hmm. I'm wearing red and um and i'm like you you're appreciating this maybe maybe from what you're saying but <laughs> i mean yes i am very much appreciating and it. i also am a beginning. person who has googled the outfits of every politician you named so when i say i don't give a shit about what they're wearing i guess i mean mm-hmm. i want to give a shit and i also want to give a shit about what dick apart how the men have to present themselves and i think that you can see that in like some of this is also right like generational there's a way that we attach a kind of like there's this connotation of brittleness um, with like, I don't know, the shoulder padded politician, women politicians of of earlier years that maybe is really unfair and like, you know, seems to not pertain to Nancy Pelosi, who seems to be someone who you regard with a warmth that um, maybe wouldn't have been the first thing that I thought of. But I mean, I really like this depiction of her. And um, as you're talking about um, her regard for queer communities, in your novel, Doubting Thomas, you write a lot about the political history of San Francisco and especially its gay communities. Um, and I wonder if, before we go any farther, if you could read us a passage from the book. Sure. I'll read from chapter 10, which is when Thomas, the main character in the book, um, is at the gym infuriated because he's found out that he's not being invited back to work after a um, false act, well, after he was cleared from a false accusation. And Thomas, unlike me, um, has passed as a straight person in the world. I, I tell people sometimes that once, I think it was in 2003, I was in a dark corner of a bar in Italy and somebody thought I was my friend Daniela's boyfriend, but then I moved one centimeter and they were like, oh, that's her gay friend because I kind of looked like the guy that she was dating. (laughs) So that was the time that I was mistaken as heterosexual, that moment of my life. Um, Whereas Thomas is somebody that's always played by the rules and he left San Francisco in the midst of the worst part or the early part of the AIDS pandemic, which is still happening. Um, And and to, to basically not deal with what was happening there at the time. So he's at the gym just sort of um, having, while he's on the treadmill, he's having this flood of of various memories, including of this kid, Chad, who he went to high school with that was more like me, bullied and feminine and um, a target of scapegoating. And so he's kind of haunted by Chad's memory in the book. With more confusion than contempt, Thomas had rejected the idea of living his life within the confines of a gay ghetto as people used to call the Castro in San Francisco, bordered by a few bars, jobs like cutting hair or working in retail. He had always loved the neighborhood, but wondered about the people who had relegated themselves to provincial enclaves. 
Had he wanted his cake and to eat it too, to be an out gay man who could also pass? Could he even claim being openly gay as a badge of honor when he did nothing to correct people's assumptions of his straightness unless it served him? People like Chad had sacrificed for him. People whose reaction to conventions, like rigid notions of femininity and masculinity for starters, was to reject or abandon or ignore them altogether. They faced double rejection, first from those unlike them, again, from those who wouldn't or couldn't muster the courage to be themselves. Thomas hadn't looked hard enough. Mostly, he didn't think about it. He didn't have to. The truth? He hadn't seen the people who had worked in the salons and stores and banks in the Castro, 10 city blocks, or the whole wide world. Thomas' idea of freedom had become so warped by the small world he inhabited, that of Portland, of Country Day, the stories contained that of Portland, of Country Day. He bought the schoolbook version of history without challenging the stories contained in its pages. He had mistaken the distant admiration and affinity with the fighters and nonconformists as some sort of open-mindedness. What had he done to earn his place in the community? What had he sacrificed? How had he ever mistaken himself for brave? Matthew, thank you so much. I really enjoyed your novel and want to recommend it to our listeners. It is this very juicy intersection of um, character and politics and history that I that I just loved. And and in the novel, the character Thomas, the title character, who used to live in San Francisco, as you you were mentioning, he teaches at a private school in, in Oregon where he's falsely accused of molesting a student. And this kind of fabricated slur, this kind of fake news, made me think of the totally false internet story about Paul Pelosi who was, um, as probably most of our listeners know, was was attacked in his home by a man who had been radicalized by right-wing rhetoric. Um, And the Santa Monica Observer, which I'm going to note here, NPR called a fringe website with a history of publishing false stories, wrote this about the attack. As SF's gay bars closed at 2 a.m., two gay men met in a bar and went home together. Happens every night in the city by the bay, except one of these two men was married to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So everything about this story is false and disgusting, really, in point, you know, and, and its implications and, and the sort of framing of this story. But Elon Musk, who owns Twitter, retweeted it. Um, and this attack, along with its convergence, has elicited an extremely frightening and sort of dangerous mixture of right wing obsessions that we should probably at least try to unpack. You want to take a shot at it? Yeah. <laughs> That's the sound. Yes. (laughs) I'd like to take a shot at it. I'd like to take a shot at it. It's, it's so, 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 so sad. And I think that first of all, Paul Pelosi and I do, I do know exactly where their house is. And I used to go buy it on my. Paul Pelosi is Nancy Pelosi's um, husband, just for anyone who just woke up after 30 years being asleep. But that's, that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I did, and I, I used to go right by their house. It's really, it's in a really beautiful part of San Francisco. You just kind of emerge from. I used to have therapy in a place that I would from my house to that place. I, li- I now live in Oakland, but when I was going from my old place to the um, place where I had therapy, I would go through the Presidio and I would just come through. And oftentimes, the time that I had, the sun would just be breaking through the fog and through the. It was just it was unbelievable, and to be you know doing that with your earphones in listening to the best song um, on a motorcycle in the city of San Francisco. It was really magical. And then you would kind of come out and be really close to where they lived. 
And, um, you know, this kind of conflation of homosexuality with with um, pedophilia, yeah. like I explore in my book, which is based on lots of research, and also this way of um, just essentially using the the idea of somebody being gay as a way to dehumanize them. Yes. So as if they deserve to be attacked in their home. It's just, it's, we're so, like people of my generation, we're so used to this. We are, so I talked to four teachers, um, and one who became a principal, all of whom had been fourth grade teachers, all of whom were out in their regular lives, all of whom were terrified when a, ki- when a kid would rush into the classroom and hug them around the waist. Like one guy says, it's like one time, like a, my teacher aide came in and I threw my hand up, hands up in the air as if I had been, you know, stuck as if somebody gave me a gun because I wanted it to be so clear that I wasn't touching that child. And I said, well, what was it? Somebody, in, he was just like, no, it's just, that's how I grew up. And the same thing. I just remember when my nieces were born feeling very strange. I didn't know my sister-in-law very well. I was still getting to know her and I knew that she, she was religious. And so I felt strange holding my own niece. And so I do think that all of these things are sort of very much related to how um, policies have been passed by coming up with a boogeyman, by coming up with a scapegoat, by coming otherizing other people, whether it was the early part of COVID in the ways in which the Trump administration tried to to make it something that was inherent to Chinese people, or whether or not it is like this way of... Um, I, I don't know. To me, it's not at all surprising that 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 headline. But the subtext of it to me is, um, you know, they they're less than human because of whatever, however it is that people are perceiving their marriage arrangement. And let's just say that he went home with a guy from a bar. This is this is me revealing my very San Francisco ness. But let's just say he, he's married to her and went home with a guy from the stud. If I had a nickel for every time I have gone home with a straight man from the Midwest from the stud bar. Do you know what I mean? This is like, that's his business. That's their right. business. I mean, we don't know their arrangement. And I think one of the things that your book does so well is show the intimate repercussions of this kind of broad scale bigotry. Like um, there's a storyline in the novel where um, Thomas is reflecting on his previous relationship with a character named Manny and thinking about their age difference. And even that relationship is inflected by this like sense of how will people perceive me at, in a relationship with a much younger man? And um, he's faced with, I don't want to spoil this novel for, for anyone, but you know, there's, yeah, there's he, there are moments when he faces personal choices that are related to um, this false accusation, to the way that he worries that people will perceive him in this regard, which is connected to, right? There's also that, there's that pizza, is it the pizza place thing with Hillary Clinton and the child trafficking something in DC? I'm glad yeah, that I can't, quite ret- together. I can't quite retain well, it. Well, there's also the repeated use of the, of the term groomer has become mm-hmm. a, a, yes. a favorite insult of the right. And by the way, the the guy who attacked Paul Pelosi mm-hmm. has said I attacked Paul Pelosi because of his of his, I wanted to attack his wife and it has said it was a political attack basically confessed that so you know whatever Matthew's talking about a theoretical theoretically it should be fine if that was happened but that is not in fact what happened right um, and so you know I just think that it's 
it's a sort of messy, but it is like, and we also talked about in Florida, the don't say gay laws. We've talked about that in the, in a previous episode, the right is, is continuing to just try to make sure just connect negativity to the idea of the, anything involving and connected to the LGBTQ community. What's really interesting to me is that Nancy Pelosi has often and almost always mentions children with absolutely everything. It's like the children, the children, the children. When she used to come to Glide, I have a memory of like her being with the kids because the kids had a choir and they would come and sometimes sit on the steps during um, the... And Glide Church is interesting. If anybody wants to Google it, I don't have time to get into explaining what it is, but it's a, it's, it's a very liberal place, but also a church. So, um, it's, so it was, it's, I think that, you know, if you, if you rewind all the way back to Anita Bryant and, and that whole, it's, it's when she was doing her anti-gay crusade, it was all about protecting children. And I have a very also vivid memory of being a kid in CCD class, the, the Catholic school, um, education, Catechism? I mean, the Catholic Sunday, the Catholic, um, what's it called? Um, religious um, education, catechism, CCD, um, where I was given a pamphlet warning against the dangers of homosexuality and some straight person, I'm assuming, or some self-hating person that wasn't straight, had to imagine in their own mind a cartoon that they drew for this pamphlet of a man clutching onto a chain link fence, looking at children with an exaggerated bulge in his jeans and really long eyelashes. That's how I remember the pamphlet that warned against homosexuality and, and gay men as predators. And I think that a lot of that is just like this sort of fear that gets people to vote. And I think that this is racialized all the time. I think that the women um, suffer from, it's, it really becomes about like getting and maintaining power. These, these To me, this is very um, strategic from the get-go. Although it gets repeated in ways that are just clumsy and not strategic, but I think that its origins are in political strategy. So yes, uh, I do. We're going to have to wrap up here because we've we we are we're up against our time. But uh, I do want to also mention there is hope for the Midwest, because I, I should have said earlier that Sharice Davids, who I think I want, I'm going to keep promoting Sharice Davids as a as a possible someone who should be in leadership in Democratic. She knows she's she's a lesbian and and also is you know being elected in this very very conservative district um and so you know there 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 is an there is a world in which um there and there are politicians who are working to change that those kinds of views and i just think we need to support them as we as i support you know as as nancy pelosi has been a crusader so has sharice david and so are other politicians and i just think it now's a good time to mark that work that Nancy Pelosi has done uh, over her time in Congress. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. And listeners, don't miss Doubting Thomas and Matthew Clark Davison's other work. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Matthew. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This is Sugi. I wanted to let FNF listeners know that there's a Goodreads giveaway for my forthcoming novel, Brotherless Night, on until November 15th. If you're based in the United States, you have until that date to sign up to win one of 40 copies. Just go to goodreads.com and look up Brotherless Night. Again, that's on until November 15th on Goodreads. And that's it for this episode of the Fiction on Fiction podcast. 
This show is produced by Anne Knigendorf. To subscribe, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings and other links we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Our website, with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. Until next time, happy reading and writing.